Hi, my name is Jeremy Lightning, and this is the Thirsty Podcast. Uh, blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. I'm here with Pastor Michael Zarling, and today we are going to go through the first five chapters of the Old Testament prophet Micah. Uh, my wife and I actually named uh, one of our sons Micah, and uh, I thought after he was born, uh, I spent the night at home alone. Um, our other son was being babysat, and uh, uh, my wife was in the hospital with our new child, uh, and I thought I should really just read through this book of uh, Micah since we named our son after him, and it's not too heavy of a hitter uh, that you can't uh, get through it in one night. Um, but uh, what is some of the historic background that you know about this book? So Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah was more in the courts and Isaiah is among the people. And with each oracle, Micah moves from doom to hope. He's not like Hosea, which we just covered recently, where there's a lot of doom. He goes from doom to hope. Uh, he got, talks about... Uh, God's broken law that was given at Sinai, uh, hope because of God's unchanging covenant uh, given through their forefathers. You can think of the first third of the book targets the sins of God's people. The second third warns of the punishment which is coming from God. And then the final third promises hope for the faithful after the judgment is completed. Uh one of the things that you mentioned is uh, something that I often think of when I read Micah, and uh, that is how he was more for the common people. Like you were saying, uh, Isaiah, w w both prophets would have been preaching to everybody, but uh, Isaiah definitely focuses more on an audience of the nobles, or today we might say the celebrities or the politicians in the community. And uh, Micah, I like to call him the the blue collar Isaiah. He is he is kind of like the uh, blue collar version of Isaiah. They talk about uh, a lot of the same things, make a lot of the same uh, major prophecies, and uh, Micah is definitely a little more in touch with uh, what would have daily life have been like for the peasants and uh, the laborers uh, among God's people. Um, chapter one. Uh, it begins with a vision of God coming down out of heaven in order to deal with his people. And uh, the way that I think of this best was a comment that somebody made in a Bible class that I led on Micah one time. One of our members said uh, this first scene in chapter one of Micah is very volcanic. Um, it talks about God taking steps that he's coming down out of heaven and he's stepping on a mountain and then on another mountain and he's coming down to his people. But with each step that he takes, his foot sort of ignites the mountain or makes it melt and suddenly uh, start overflowing with fire. And uh, what is that other than a volcano? So God is not coming down out of heaven in this first scene in order to save his people. It's, it's to come down with judgment on them. And then who is he bringing that judgment upon? Verse five says, what is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So both capital cities, uh, Samaria and Jerusalem were centers of idolatry. Uh, the reign of King Ahaz was one of the high points, or we as Christians would call it a low point for idolatry in Jerusalem. Well, Pastor Leighton, what are some of the 
idols that we see in America today. You know, I can think of being woke, uh, critical race theory, abortion feelings. They're destroying our culture from the inside out. And like you said, uh, God coming down in judgment. Today was kind of a, an exciting and uh, a sad day. I took my daughter Miriam to uh, the airport. She's flying right now to Fort Knox, Kentucky. She's going to be there for six weeks in the military. And, and I had seen a video uh, comparing uh, the Russian army, which is big, strong, tall guys, well over six foot, short haircuts, uh, doing push-ups and heavy artillery, and then the the ads that our American army just came out with is talking about a young lady that grew up with two moms. Mm-hmm. And you kind of wonder, are we going to be the most tolerant uh, army in uh, history that loses a war? Mm. Okay, uh, Because we've become tolerant of sin and false idols that glorify feelings as opposed to standing strong. The- and what you just said uh, could be construed, if I wanted to be like a, a meanie to you, uh, it could be construed as unpatriotic. Uh, you, you are, if you know, what, what you say about our military, uh, you are undermining the uh, fabric of our community and our country, and, and you're demoralizing the defenders of our country. Well, that's actually the accusation that... Um, the idolaters in ancient Judea would have leveled against prophets like Micah uh, to say, what do you think you're doing, Micah, by um, telling our troops that they're going to be defeated? Uh, What do you think you're doing by suggesting that God isn't behind and defending uh, our national cause? Uh, Well, God has not, well, actually he did have a political nation that was Israel that he told us, this is my chosen people. And even they were um, neglected by him when they went astray. So uh, how much more shouldn't we think the same thing when uh, God has not promised that America will endure forever or any, any uh, political entity? And then verse seven uh, Micah talks about all her carved idols will be crushed and all her wages will be burned with fire. I will sentence all her useless images to destruction because she collected a prostitute's wages to obtain them. They will become a prostitute's wages again. Uh, so this last half of verse 7 that talks about the prostitute's wages spells out Israel's sin and God's judgment. Uh, So Micah is condemning Israel's spiritual idolatry, the worship of idols. Uh, Since the Israelites spent so much to keep up their idols and their temples, the Lord would cause Israel's enemies to ransack the temples and carry away all their idol wealth to be used in the worship of yet more idols. Uh, And so now, but now it would be in the idol temples of their enemies. You asked me earlier uh, what would be idols in modern times, and uh, I think you you named a couple of them. Uh, As I look at verse 7 and see the word carved idols, um, it makes me think of statues. And uh, sometimes we, I mean, even on the high school where I work, we have a statue of a hero, uh, Martin Luther, uh, and we've got statues all over our country of of political figures uh, or cultural celebrities. Um, and I, I think that might be a good measuring rod for 
uh, are we, do we idolize these people? I'm not saying that, that we do necessarily, but uh, if they're important enough for us to build a statue for them, uh, that is a good way to examine your heart. Um, prostitution in that same verse, uh, like you said, there's a fine line in God's mind between idolatry and adultery, that uh, unfaithfulness uh, to his word is very similar to marital unfaithfulness um, in the Bible. Um, I'm going to move us on to the second half of the chapter. And uh, this is one of the first times that you, you can see how Micah is the blue-collar Isaiah, because uh, what does he do? He talks to people in a way that definitely keeps their ears perked up. Uh, you wouldn't know it from reading the English Bible, but uh, the second half of chapter one is full of puns. Every uh, pun, uh, every line almost, has some kind of pun that makes a play, of, play on words or an onomatopoeia of the name of the town. So verse 10 says, do not announce it in Gath, do not weep at all. The word for announce sounds in Hebrew very similar to the word for gath. So do not, something like do not gab about it in gath might be a way to bring that into English. Now, uh, what I wanted to do, Pastor Zarling, is uh, try this with our, our region here and uh, we, the big metro areas for us are Racine and Kenosha. Uh, and so if we would try something similar, uh, you might say something like uh, Racine, you will be racing uh, for cover. You, you'll be racing to get out of the way of this tragedy that the army's invading. Or Kenosha, uh, you can expect to get canned, uh, something like that. Uh, what, uh, what, what do you think would be some play on words that you would preached on uh, Isaiah or Micah chapter one. So for those of you who are listening uh, and you've never been here to Racine, there's a really weird thing that's set up here. It took me a long time to figure it out. So Mount Pleasant is a village that goes like a sea around the city of Racine from one side of the lake to the other side of the lake. And so I live in the south side of Mount Pleasant and, uh, you know, I guess what you're talking about, Pastor Lightning, I would say that Mount Pleasant really isn't a mount, nor is it very pleasant. It, oh, go ahead. And oh, although I think it is a nice place to live, but in what you're talking about, or it's not going to be pleasant for you, Mount Pleasant. Yeah. That's kind of what he's saying. And we used to live in Sturdivant, which is just west of Racine, and then Mount Pleasant. You get to Sturdivant, so we would call it Dirty Sturdy. Mm, there, yeah. Uh, yeah, and the point the point is first of all, uh, it kind of would make a reader smile a little bit, but then you very quickly remember this is no laughing matter. This is God's judgment that He's dealing out, and so it kind of makes the judgment very memorable uh, for the people on the street, um, the 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 common day laborers, the, the workers uh, in the in the peasant class of Micah's time. But what you're talking about, Pastor Lightning, is in, in the notes of the EHV Bible, and they talk about how their translation does not attempt to reproduce all the puns because many of them do not have good English equivalents, or they simply express similarity of sound, and they attempt to mimic the sound stilted. So, you know, if you're just listening to this in the English, or you're reading it on your own, you're not going to pick up on it. You have to be a Hebrew reader to understand the language. Uh, in chapter two, there are uh, 
quite a few words that God has for um, the the people who are in power or the people who are in charge of things. And he's going to come back to this theme again. But this in chapter two is, first of all, kind of a general theme. Um, and I think one of the key verses would be uh, woe t- right in uh, verse one. Woe to those who plan wickedness. Make, they make preparations for evil while lying on their beds. Uh, by the morning light, they carry it out because it is in the power of their hands to do so. And I think that's a good reminder, if you want to apply these words to yourself, uh, that if you're doing something just because you're able to do it, uh, that is not a good reason. And there's a good chance that you might have some uh, unholy motives for doing it, just if you're doing it just because you can. Um, and he goes on to uh, lambast and, and uh, decry those who are coveting fields and then seizing them and uh, taking away people's inheritance and uh, on and on. And then you get to uh, verse 6. I think this is just a, a powerful verse. Uh, Micah says, stop preaching, they preach. Do not preach about these things, but these charges will not be turned away. The Hebrew there talks about stop preaching as really meaning stop droning on. Uh, the basic meaning of that Hebrew word uh, really means to drip or drool. So this implies that Micah's message is a tiresome one that the people don't want to hear. Uh, the And the English word preach that you and I would use sometimes has that same kind of negative connotation. You know, people might say, don't preach to me. And people don't like having their sins pointed out to them. Uh, they get upset when their consciences are pricked by the strong words of the preacher. And when their conscience is guilty, what do they do? Well, usually it's the opposite of what they should be doing. They should be looking inwardly when they hear the preacher drone on about their sins, dripping over and over again, pointing those sins out to them. They should find that sin and deal with it. Instead, a lot of times they lash out at the preacher and saying that he said something wrong or harsh. Don't preach at me, they're saying. But you and I know this because we've been, well, how long have you been in the ministry? Uh, better part of two decades. Okay. Now I'm celebrating 25 years this year. And uh, we need to remember that when we preach, we're given the words to preach. And sometimes they may be strong words, but they're not wrong words. And that's a difference. That's not right. It, I, mean, I, haven't, I haven't reached uh, 15 years yet, so it's not the better part of oh, two I decades. Oh, you said I wasn't right. No, I'm... I'm <laughs> oh, no, I, I, yes, I... I apologize. Uh, no, you are right. I was incorrect with my calculations on how long I've been in the ministry. Um, but I, what you were just saying kind of reminded me of, and, and what Micah is saying in verse 6 is a lot like the uh, bumper sticker theology that you often see where people say, uh, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, or the bumper sticker that, uh, uh, what does it say, tolerance or tolerate? Uh, it, it's actually very... It, it, it's very, it's very preachy. It's saying, uh, you, you should be a certain way. Don't be this way, be that way. Uh, and they end up, if they think the preacher is dripping on and on, they end up dripping on and on themselves. Um, I wanted to talk about, uh, another part where you can see Micah dealing with the salt of the earth people. Uh, he, he talks about in verse eight, 
that uh, you strip off the splendid robe from those who pass by, even uh, as they return safely from battle. Um, there are a lot of ways you could understand that verse, but I think the best one really kind of came to me with another guy in that Bible class that I led on Micah, uh, who is a great proponent of veterans and uh, looking out for and taking care of our veterans. And uh, he, uh, he, he got me on the radio down in uh, Kansas, uh, and, and he's always saying we need to be taking care of our veterans. Uh, because they're so easy to forget. And a lot of times, you know, veteran hospitals are uh, sort of neglected. And uh, this is, I think, what Micah is talking about. Somebody coming back from battle in chapter 8, they survived. They were ready to give their life for their country, and they came home, but only to find what? That there was a debt collector who was ready to literally rip the robe off the guy's back. He's got his nice uniform on, and, uh, well, you got to pay back your, your debt from uh, before you went to war. And, uh, it, well... Can you maybe make some exceptions for this guy? He almost gave his life for your country. Nope, you, you, you got to pay me back. Uh, and uh, you, you drive the women among my people from, out of their comfortable houses. You take away my splendor from their children forever. Uh, you you uh, impoverish the families of these soldiers. And uh, uh, that, that, is, that was a problem back in Micah's day, uh, just as much as uh, we often forget about our veterans still today. And that leads to verse 11, which goes back to uh, Micah saying that he was hearing people say to him, stop preaching. Well, what do they want to hear? They want to hear someone preach for you about wine and beer. Uh, we have our daughter's graduation party because she's graduating from Shoreland tomorrow. And I was at the grocery store and uh, I bought a lot of beer and wine for the party. Hmm. And the guy behind me said... I'm just following you, okay? <laughs> but what Mike is saying is this is what people want to hear. They want to hear the things that make them glad, like uh, wine and beer. Uh, have you heard the term, Pastor Lightning, called exvangelical? Uh, no, this is new to me. All right, so it was new to me too. But uh, if you remember the, the band uh, DC Talk, Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. So Kevin Max, who was part of DC Talk, he's the latest Christian to come out on Twitter to say that he is an ex-evangelical. So he's no longer an evangelical. And what that means, it's the catchy term for people walking away from Protestant evangelicalism. Uh, and they're talking about what you said. We're spiritual. Uh, we're not religious. They're saying they had some kind of traumatic experience in a conservative church, and now they're gravitating toward progressive Christianity. Uh, so there's all kinds of people that are like this. Uh, and uh, you can understand the pressures that are on these people. There's a lot of pressures on any Christians today, especially young people, and especially people in Hollywood, the music industry, and so forth. And what they want to hear is beer and wine. They don't want to hear the about the solid food of you know the bread of life. They don't want to hear drink the the water of life, law and gospel, sin and grace. A, a God who justly damns and a and a savior who then is gracious and saves from hell. And 
as you say that about uh, conservative Christianity, uh, I think a lot of our listeners maybe already uh, are uh, in our fellowship in the Lutheran Church, um, and you hear that word conservative a little bit differently than maybe uh, evangelicals would hear it, uh, because I think in a lot of ways, and correct me if I'm wrong, but... um, uh, those people that have had bad experiences with evangelical conservative uh, Christianity, a lot of times what they went through was th- that there was a lot of hypocrisy in, uh, in, in their churches that they grew up with and a lot of pressure to live up to a certain standard that, yeah, I'm sure they were told Jesus died for you and you're saved by grace alone, maybe once or twice, but then what do those holiness churches do? They focus on, now you make sure to behave yourself, and that becomes the predominant message. Uh, so it's kind of sad. It, it doesn't make it right for them to walk away from God and his word, but uh, you can sort of see, yeah, I, w- I, I would probably be disillusioned with uh, Christianity if that was the version of it that I heard as well. Yeah, what you were saying about uh, people just wanting to hear and then do, you know, do Christianity, just do more and do better, which is very different from what you and I are preaching the next two weeks, because Pastor Lighton and I are switching pulpits, and he's going to be preaching on, you know, dead in sin through baptism. I'm preaching kind of the same message on buried under the water in baptism. That's what we go to as Lutherans is we go back not to do better, mm-hmm. but because you're a dead corpse, you can't do any better. You've got to die to sin and you raise to a new life in Christ. That's a totally different message than the evangelicals or ex-evangelicals mm-hmm. are hearing. Uh, the end of chapter two and uh, concludes with a, uh, a a lot of Christian a lot of Christian interpreters have seen it as a prediction of the Messiah. Um, so thousands of years. Well, not thousands, I'm sorry, uh, several hundred years before Jesus' birth, um, it, it says in verse 13, the one who breaks through the siege line will go up ahead of them. Uh, they too will break out and pass through the gate. Uh, and so you think again of those uh, veterans. These are the foot soldiers, the common peasants that were recruited for fighting in the Israelite military. And uh, you might say they were sort of a lot of times in battle. They were the cannon fodder. They had to be the first ones to uh, attack the enemy and cross the, the battle line. Um, and so here the Messiah is depicted as one of them. And he's saying, Uh, I know how it feels to be the first one. In fact, I'm going to be the only one crossing the battle line to defeat sin, death, and hell. Uh, And then all of the rest of you are pictured as following me. Uh, The Messiah is saying, I'll I'll break through the line for you, and then then you can follow me, uh, and we're all in this together uh, as uh, fellow foot soldiers of God's people. So when I ask my catechism uh, students to name names of Jesus, and they'll come up with Good Shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, uh, Alpha and Omega. None of them have ever come up with Breaker. <laughs> you know, but this this is a, a great picture of Jesus. Like you said, he's breaking open the gates of sin and death and leads us out. Uh, he is the head of the procession. Uh, that So here's some, some geeky movie references for you. So he's like Braveheart. You know, leading uh, against the English army. He's like Captain America going against Thanos with his uh, shield in one arm and Molnir, 
Thor's hammer in the other. And he is like uh, Aragon in the Lord of the Rings, defeating Sauron's forces in Gondor, leading, then leading the armies of Gondor and Rohan against the Black Gates of Mordor. The, those, the, that's a full gamut of references there. You, I'm trying to think of uh, any that, uh, I, I don't know if I can match those. That's okay. That's what I'm here for. Uh, it, in chapter three, uh, I, I don't know if I have a whole lot to say about it, uh, but again, we, it comes back to that uh, theme of rebuking the leaders and uh, condemning those who take advantage of the underprivileged or the common people on the street. Um, and uh, I can't help but thinking of uh, a podcast that I often listen to uh, produced by one of the uh, professors at our ministry training college where he, he talked about communication. And uh, one of the first things about communication that he said in his podcast series was uh, sometimes you say things to a person, uh, not because you're so much interested in getting the message across to the person, but because you're getting, you want to get the, uh, a third party that is listening in to hear what you are saying. Uh, in other words, uh, he gave the example of a woman, uh, a young lady in his class in college who uh, made a comment one time in class about, uh, oh, well, you know, I'm just ugly. And she went on to say some other things. But he went back and zeroed in on her comment about being ugly. And he, he sort of said, I wasn't doing that so much to reassure her, but it was because of other people in the class that needed me to hear uh, needed to hear me say that to her. And I think you sort of see that in this chapter, that uh, God is rebuking the leaders for their abuse of the common people. Uh, and who is it that Micah is preaching to? He's preaching to the common people. And, and he's saying to them, I know this is hard for you to be uh, under this iron-fisted uh, government or these uh, corrupt preachers who only uh, uh, preach a message of, of grace to you when you're taking good care of their bellies. Um, it, I, he's, he's telling the, the peasants, I, I know what life as a peasant is like. And uh, then he's especially going to get to that with uh, chapter 5 and the prediction of a birth at a peasant town like Bethlehem. Yeah, when he's talking about the leaders, you know, he says some pretty strong uh, language here in verses 2 and 3. Uh, you tear off the skin and the flesh from the bones. You eat the flesh of my people and peel off their skin. You smash their bones. You chop them up like pieces for the cooking pot, like meat for the cauldron. Uh, you know, he's not, he's talking figuratively. They weren't actually involved in cannibalism but it did remind me of a story i read this last week that the new york school system said they're no longer going to celebrate columbus day which i didn't think was that big of a news story because i thought they dropped columbus day a long time ago but now they're officially going to be celebrating indigenous people's day and yet I think it's important for us to understand, you know, what were indigenous peoples in North and Central America doing to each other? Uh, you know, most of the bodies that they found, 90% of them have had their skulls crushed in and their chests ripped open, uh, that they used razor-sharp obsidian blade, blades, uh, slicing open the chests of their people, taking out the still-beating heart like in the Indiana Jones movie. Then they tossed their bodies down the steps of their, uh, of their Mayan temples and so forth. 
Uh, it's not really uh, singing with all the voices of the mountain or with the colors of the wind like in Pocahontas. <laughs> Uh, but the idea and the reason I share that is because all of these cultures in North and Central America were doing this to each other because why? They did not have Christ in their lives. And it's the same thing that Micah is talking about to the leaders, the spiritual and political leaders uh, in Israel and Judah of what they're doing to the people because without the true God in their lives, they're just going to take advantage of people. And uh, we we shouldn't think that uh, just because we live in a, a culture that, uh, you know, used to be uh, or sort of was predominantly Christian, we, we shouldn't think that uh, that makes us exempt uh, from the, the same kind of sins and, and building on uh, the, uh, un, uh, the underprivileged or the uh, downtrodden, uh, because what does verse 11 say at the end of the chapter that these people that are getting rebuked by Micah, uh, these people are saying, well, the Lord is in our midst, isn't he? Disaster will not come upon us. We, we have the label of the right God on us. So, uh, you, you can't say that we're, uh, we're in the wrong because we're God's people. We're, we're a chosen nation. Uh, even when you're a chosen nation, uh, that doesn't mean you, it's impossible for you to walk away from God. Uh, and uh, I, I guess that's all I had for uh, chapter three. Yeah, I just wanted to, to pick up on that last thing that Satan offers two big lies. I always like to say that uh, Satan you know, is a one trick pony. You know, he doesn't have a lot of tricks up his sleeve. You know, he just uses the same ones over and over again. And two of his big lies are first to unbelievers. He says, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you live right. But then what does he say to believers? It doesn't matter how you live as long as you believe. Mm, mm-hmm. And it's obvious from this chapter of about Israel and Judah that they had bought into that latter lie, that it doesn't matter how you live just as long as you believe. Uh, and, and think about our culture again, that our ecumenical movement that says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you live right. And then they're just paying lip service to Christianity. Uh, And people have turned Christianity then into nothing more than a coping mechanism. Uh, What's true for me is true for me, but, you know, Pastor Lightning, what's true for you? Well, that's true for you. Uh, And so today, if people want to believe that their atheist father is in heaven or that he's now communing with the cosmos and you can commune with him whenever you walk in the woods, well... If that makes you feel good, then do that. And, and that's what has happened in our, our nation when you go away from Christ. And it doesn't matter in one sense. Again, bu- buying into Satan's lie, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you live right. And the opposite, it doesn't matter uh, you know, what you believe. Well, that, I said What that, you live it, as long as you believe right. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so just go ahead and keep on sinning. Uh, because, you, you know, you, you're, you've got the... You've got the Christ label on you. Um, Well, uh, I couldn't help but uh, think of you as we uh, approach chapter four. Uh, As I was reading through this, I thought of a comment you made in a previous episode, Pastor Zarling, about um, how, how much God loves mountains. All right. And, and this is this Especially is Mount Calvary. This is one of the well, I think we should update people on uh, the conference that we just recently went to where uh, uh, Professor Brug told us that uh, 
Calvary was uh, actually a quarry. It was a quarry. But uh, but it, but there could have been a raised part of the quarry that that would have been the place with the crosses. But uh, either way, um, God's church is here depicted as a mountain. And maybe church is the wrong word to use because in the Old Testament, they would have thought of uh, the people of Israel or the uh, synagogue, the temple, the, the nation that gathered around God's word. Uh, but uh, in chapter four, the first half of it, uh, God pictures his, his dwelling place and his people as uh, a gathering that takes place on a mountain. And Micah 4, the first five verses are a close parallel to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. So some are wondering if, uh, you know, because it's not a verbatim reproduction, you know, Micah is including material not found in Isaiah. Uh, But it it talks in both places and about, especially Isaiah uh, 2, verse 4 that he will judge between the nations and he will mediate for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their, spear, their spears into blades for trimming vines. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, nor will they learn war anymore. Uh, so I had preached on that verse a number of years ago, and I had this story in there and a, a picture up on our sanctuary screen of a bronze sculpture uh, in the North Garden of the United Nations headquarters in New York City. So you can go see this. It's called Let Us Beat Our Swords into Plowshares. And what it is, uh, it's a huge statue of a man who is holding a hammer aloft in his right hand and a sword pointed down to the ground in his left hand. So he is beating the sword into a plowshare. Instead of fighting, he'll be farming. Uh, He's no longer going to war, and so he's turning his weapon of destruction into creative tools for the benefit of mankind. And it's a good picture for the United Nations, but it's a better picture for us, like you said, in the Christian church, in the kingdom of God, that uh, one day day that we'll no longer have to take up swords against each other because now everything will be at peace. Uh, and it is such a great picture of the church because uh, it's also an evangelistic picture. Uh, it talks about how many nations will come and say, uh, let us go to the mountain of the Lord in verse 2. In other words, it's not just Jews that are going to be um, believers in the true God. And uh, today we might say it's not just those who are born and baptized into the church who are going to be uh, entering into membership in a church. There will be other people, um, and uh, God is interested in gathering uh, all kinds of nations uh, into his fellowship. Um, The uh, second half of the chapter talks a little bit more about God's people, the church. Micah makes predictions uh, about them, uh, in, uh, casting them in terms of a flock, the uh, the type of uh, farm animals that would be grazing. And uh, there are many different things that uh, he, he says to them and about them. Uh, but uh, what are some of your notes on this chapter? Yeah, verse 8. Uh, but you, but for you, watchtower of the flock, for you, stronghold of the daughter of Zion, for you, the power to rule, which you had before will come again. The kingship will return to the daughter of Jerusalem. Uh, and then the last sentence, uh, 
about there uh, you will be rescued. What, what he's talking about there. We're having some technical difficulties. You know, uh, you know, uh, verse 13. Rise up and thrush, daughter of Zion, for I will turn your horns into iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze, and you will crush many peoples. You will dedicate what they have gained to the Lord and their wealth to the Lord of the earth. Uh, there what many believe Micah is talking about is that God is going to send uh, his son out from Jerusalem. And, and this is a great picture of the battles in Revelation chapter 19, Revelation 19 and 20. I know you and I are excited to get to Revelation. Mm. Uh, but when you hear that verse 13, and it's talking about the, the white rider, I think. The white rider uh, on the white horse in Revelation 19 and then binding Satan in chapter 20 and then the rest of chapter 20, the saints living and reigning with Christ in heaven. I also thought of Revelation, uh, except my mind went to chapter 1 and the depiction of Jesus there when he has the sword coming out of his mouth and uh, uh, the long flowing robe and sash, but it also says his feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. And uh, I just went through this with with my students. The school year is done now. That's a great feeling, by the way, uh, to be done teaching for the year. But uh, I really enjoyed uh, taking them through the book of Revelation and uh, looking at Jesus' feet there. I said, uh, now, there are a couple of ways you could understand this, but one of my favorites is uh, how much of those feet are heat and and, uh, fire? And the answer is 100%. Uh, And how much of them are metal? And again, the answer is 100%. Uh, And that is a good illustration of Jesus being true God and true man at the same time. He's 100% both. Um, but he also tramples his enemies and uh, leaves them no chance of survival when he, when he tramples them. And in this verse, the neat thing is Christ is promising his people, I, I will lead you to uh, do the same things that I have done. Like he told his apostles uh, the night before he died, you're going to do greater things than, than I've done because it's, it's no big deal for the Son of God to do miracles, but a sinful human to do miracles, uh, that is a great thing. And uh, uh, here is kind of a prediction, you could say, of uh, God promising that his people, like Christ, will also uh, have uh, horns of iron and, and hoofs of bronze that uh, nobody will be able to stand up against uh, their testimony. Testimony. Then you go on to chapter chapter five that the ruler that we're talking about is going to come from the little town of Bethlehem, and the most famous verse is chapter two. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, from you will go out from the one who will be ruler for me in Israel. Uh, so I don't know what you want to say about Bethlehem, but I want to talk a little bit about you know. Any real estate agent's going to talk to you about uh, location, 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 right? Mm-hmm. And to think about God knew this too: location, location, location. That seven hundred years before Christ is born, He picked out the location where His Son was going to have His incarnation of God in human flesh. And then think of how God had moved Naomi and Elimelech. To Moab, and then Elimelech and his two sons, Malon and Kilion, died, 
But one of them had married Ruth, and Ruth and Naomi moved back to Jerusalem, back to Judah, and there uh, Ruth marries Boaz, and you know they're in Bethlehem, and then their great grandson or so is David, and David's hometown is Bethlehem. So now you've got King David's is from the town of Bethlehem, and now think about thirteen hundred years later how God used Caesar Augustus issuing a decree to the whole uh, Roman world that this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. We all know that when the kids say that in Mm -hmm. in the Christmas uh, service. Christmas Eve. And then everyone went to their own town to register. And so God used Caesar Augustus, the mightiest man uh, on the earth at the time, to want to start counting people so that he ends up moving Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to fulfill his prophecy given 700 years earlier to the little town of Bethlehem. It is amazing if you think about it. And anybody that is uh, critical or skeptical of Christianity needs to pay attention to these details. And if you know people, uh, dear listeners, if you know people who are uh, skeptical or critical of Christianity, uh, these are the kind of things that you should focus on with them. Um, if if Jesus of Nazareth is just a made-up religion, first of all, you can't say that because even secular historians know that he existed and they admit that he was a real person. Uh, but uh, if he was a con artist who just wanted to make up his own religion, um, then he didn't really have much power over where he was going to be born. Uh, that's a strong argument when you think about it. Uh, he, he couldn't, he couldn't have determined prior to his conception that, uh, well, yeah, Caesar Augustus, make sure to make that command and, and mom and dad, make sure that you come from Bethlehem and then go to Bethlehem. Uh, no, that, that was, uh, something that was bigger than just the, the man, Jesus and, and his birth. It, It shows you that he was also true God. And then I always teach my catechism students, too, that they're getting old enough to look at uh, sentences, even single words. So I really hadn't noticed this before because when I preach on Bethlehem, I kind of talk about what I just said. But the last line of verse 2, his goings forth are from the beginning, from the days of eternity. And there, that Hebrew word that the EHV translates as plural, his goings forth, uh, and a lot of people understand that uh, that being plural, why that is, that there is a, a reference to the eternal generation of begetting the Son who goes out from the Father. And it's also a reference to the human ancestors of the Messiah who descends from the, the patriarchs. And then the third is a reference to the appearances of Christ as the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. So just that whole idea of not his going forth, but his goings forth as God and and as man in his incarnation. And then also, as I said, throughout the Old Testament, you see him as the angel of the Lord. A lot of uh, births, you could say, of, of or going out, yeah, goings out, uh, the 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 mystery of the Trinity and, and Trinity Sunday's coming up, but uh, what does it mean that the Father begets the Son? Uh, it's something that always happens. It it always has happened, and it will always continue to happen between the Father and the Son. That the Father 
fathers the son. That's a going forth, and then uh, his human ancestry, like you said, and and also his. Uh, I guess I'm just repeating to show you that I was listening. Uh, that that it, he prior to becoming human, uh, the son of God showed himself as the angel of the Lord that went forth uh, with the armies of Israel. Um, the uh, second half of the chapter uh, talks about a lot of things. Uh, one of them is, I think it's important to remember that uh, there were some political rumblings that happened in Israel uh, in, or in the nation of Judea uh, during Isaiah and Micah's time. But for the most part, they still had a king. They, they still had uh, a nation to themselves. They weren't really enslaved like in the Babylonian captivity yet. So it probably would have sounded very strange for Isaiah and Micah to be preaching about, don't worry, you'll get your king back. Don't worry, you'll become a nation again. Uh, a lot of their listeners would have been thinking, well, yeah, that's no problem. We're, we already have a nation. We already have a king. But they were actually talking uh, also to the next couple of generations who would see the uh, monarchy uh, go into exile and be eradicated. Uh, and then this is really a prediction of the king that is the Messiah who would return when uh, David's greater son, Jesus, would be born of Mary. And then the last few verses, uh, Micah says, this is what will happen on that day, declares the Lord. Uh, I'll cut off your horses. I'll cut off the cities from your land. I'll cut off every form of witchcraft. Uh, I will cut off your carved images. I will uproot your Asherah poles from your midst. In anger and wrath, I will inflict vengeance on the nations that have not listened to me. And we should never be upset that God is just. You know, he will justly bring his righteous judgment on those who are not following him. Uh, and yet, as much as this is being spoken against the people of Israel and Judah, still you and I can take great comfort in the fact that all of God's enemies will be defeated on the last day, that the visible church is going to be cleansed from all of the corruption that creeps into it. The, that's a great verse to end on. Uh, in anger and wrath, I will inflict vengeance on the nations that have not listened to me. Because then the reverse of that is also true, uh, that we do not need to fear or uh, be concerned about his anger and wrath being inflicted on us with his vengeance uh, for, for those of us who have listened to him. What a simple thing to do. It doesn't really take any effort. Uh, God speaks to you with his words, and he's even created the uh, eardrums and uh, thought processes that uh, digest inwardly what he has said and, and tells us about his salvation. Anything else you want to bring up with Micah chapter 5? I'm done. All right. So next week, we'll spend more time with Micah. This is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Heat Lightning. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>